Our passage for today uh, comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, and this is what it says. God answered uh, them, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Understanding uh, the way Ezekiel and other Bible prophets communicate is like understanding people from other cultures. Uh, for instance, I like to describe the way in which I communicate as passionate, as vibrant, as exuberant. But since I moved to the United States, I've learned that some people just think I'm loud. <laughs> I know this section is very shocked about that. Uh, some friends of mine are here. Apparently, even my own children, whom I have had the chance to train since the time they were in utero, think I'm loud. And uh, that's proven by the fact that Joel, the other day, came and said, Mom, thanks for reminding my teacher, but she's not deaf, you know. <laughs> or my son coming to me after the baseball league game and a little league game and uh, saying, Mom, you're just definitely louder than all the other moms. Just stop it. I can tell I'm, you can tell I'm embarrassing my children, really, by scarring them for life. Now, some of the Old Testament prophets were like Hispanic times 20. They were, they were super loud and very passionate about their cause uh, to the point of being obsessive about it. They were uh, very committed, relentless, and on-your-face type of communicators. The way in which they communicate can actually be a barrier for us in understanding the Old Testament books because they can feel foreign to us, especially we don't read them accompanied by some history books. It is important, guys, as we're beginning this Ezekiel series, that if you don't have a good Bible study Bible, that you go and purchase one because you're going to need a lot of context to understand some of these passages. Another thing that gets in the way of us understanding the Old Testament is what I call our 911 worldview. And what I mean with that 911 worldview is that um, is this. When um, this is an example, when Eric uh, visited my my country for the first time, my parents had just been robbed of everything, of everything, and. Uh, they went to Europe for their 30th year anniversary uh, with my sister. The time they came back, the house had been emptied. Eric was outraged. He said, well, um, did you guys call the police? Did you call 911? And they were like, what's 911? <laughs> and Eric said, well, the emergency response hotline, you know, the police, call them. And they were like laughing uncontrollably <laughs> to the point of upsetting Eric. Eric was upset and just looking at them and saying, what's wrong with them? Why are they laughing at me? And they said, well, it's just funny. They were like, the police, that's hilarious because they, they're probably the ones who took all our stuff. <laughs> Eric just could not believe it. How could that be? The concept of a corrupt police force or a place where you can't just grab the phone and call 911 was just unthinkable for him. But then he started paying attention to all of the places that we were going to visit, and he noticed that all of the places that had something valuable inside of them had hired a private police force to protect those things. 
He has never been happier to get back to the United States. I can guarantee you that. He just wanted to have 911 available to him. <laughs> so when we read the Old Testament through that 911 worldview, and we're, then we're enabled to process the level of violence, pain, despair that was a daily reality for those ancient societies. Most of the Bible patriarchs were nomads. They had no place that they could call home. They journeyed through the desert. They were enslaved. Women had no rights. Some powerful kingdoms would oppress the weak and the vulnerable. Some of the stories sound so uncivilized, so raw to us that we just much rather not even deal with them. We want to avoid the Old Testament altogether. And actually, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been some leaders, some people who have said, you know what, the, the Old Testament is so, so ancient, so violent, so, so raw, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't even consider it the Word of God. But it is the Word of God. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And God worked within that horrible, raw types of societies. He brought his redemption even to the darkest places, to the darkest situations. Even in the midst of all that chaos, the same God that we know today was present in the Old Testament, trying everything to be in relationship with us. If you read the Old Testament carefully from beginning to end, you'll notice that it's God's unending plea for us to come back to him, to repent, to be in covenant with him. He's reminding us that we are called to be set apart, that we are called to be the light for all the nations. So that is a type of context to which God calls Ezekiel to prophesy to. He says, uh, go and speak to these people. And remind them that I am their God. Ezekiel lived in 597 BC and approximately. So he witnessed his family, those closest to him, people that he didn't even know, thousands of people, including women and children, be exiled from Judea and taken as prisoners to Babylon. I imagine it was just painful to see people losing everything they had everything that they had worked so hard for. They lost everything and they were taken. While they are in exile, they arrive to Babylon, the people lose their identity. And I imagine it's because of all the changes they've gone through. They just lose their identity. They forget that God had chosen them. They forget that God had called them, that God had delivered them, that God had brought them to the promised land, that God has done all these things for them. And instead of trusting in their one true God, they become seduced and they start worshiping these Babylonian gods. The Israelite women apparently took up the worship of a god called Tammuz, which was the, the god of vegetation. They would beg this god, kneel to this god, asking this god to end the drought. Then both the, the Israelite men and women started worshiping Ishtar, which was the god of war and sex. They started idolizing how Babylonians looked so powerful and they had so many victories, so they started bowing down to these gods of theirs, thinking that they would have the same thing. The men started bowing down to the sun god Shamash. This Babylonian god was supposed to be the god of law and justice. 
And it's incredible that these Israelites decided to bow down to this God, considering that they lived in Babylon, a place that was full of injustice and a lawless kind of place. Another thing that you need to know about these Babylonian gods is that their power, their greatness, the survival of the gods was dependent on the power and survival and the greatness of the people. If any of these gods would allow the people to be conquered or the people to be uh, defeated in battle, the people would wreck that god. They would kill it, and they would just choose a different god to worship. So these gods were disposable. Ezekiel tells them, guys, just stop worshiping these false idols because you are breaking God's heart. You are just breaking God's heart. And he especially complained to the people of Israel about the guys that were kneeling down to this god Shamash because the, the worship to this sun god was done right next to the temple of God. And for them to face the direction of the sun and to bow down to the sun, they would have to turn their bodies around and kneel down, putting their backs against the temple of God, ignoring that God was even there. Ezekiel was crying out in outrage and saying, guys, your behavior is breaking God's heart. But it is not hard for us to understand why the Israelites chose to worship those Babylonian gods instead of the God of Israel. Those Babylonian gods were easier to follow. Those were idols that, you know, they were therapeutic for people. They could come together as a community and worship something together. It gave them something to do as a community. And most importantly, those gods never demanded anything of them, never wanted anything in return. It didn't require any transformation, any change. They could use them as needed. And if the gods didn't answer their prayers, they would wreck that god and just pick another god. In the midst of all of that, insanity, that idolatry, is that Ezekiel comes and says, guys, God, the only God that is holy is the God of Israel. God is holy, and he's asking you to be holy as he is holy. But nobody's listening. So the presence of God chooses to leave the temple. He just leaves. And as the holy presence of God leaves the temple, the people are left to deal with the consequences, with the terrible consequences of their behavior and of their sin. If there is anything that is true about the sin of idolatry, it's that it brings just brutal consequences for people. Because it, de it deceives the person's soul, the person's thoughts, the person's feelings. And the person becomes so consumed in this idol worship that they won't let it go for anything. They will mask it in any way they can. Because that idol is the one thing that offers them relief from the pain, the guilt, the shame, and the loneliness that people feel. That has to be one of the reasons, main reasons why Idolatry makes it to the Ten Commandments. This is what God says in Exodus. It says, do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now some of you are like, Phew, 
so glad that we're not in Babylon and we don't worship that weird Tammuz or Ishtar or Shamash. I have really bad news in some ways um, because modern day idolatry is a real thing. And I love what the way pastor and writer Timothy Keller describes it. This is what he says about modern day idolatry. He says, anything can be an idol and everything has been an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without giving it a second thought. It can be career or making money or achievement or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, a great political or social cause. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex god, Gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, nation gods, for the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the hearts of a person or on the, in the life of a people. Uh, a couple of years ago, when we were still worshiping at the gym, I met this uh, young lady. She came to me and uh, she asked me for coffee. She said, let's go have coffee because I have something that really has been in my heart. I'm, I'm feeling lost, and let's get together. We got together, and as we got together, she told me that she's gone through a divorce. She was so sad about it. Um, I said, you know, I wanted to find out how, you know, they got to the place where they got divorced, and she told me her life story. She said that she doesn't know when it all started for her, but at some point in her life, she decided that having security was the most important thing for her. She said that she remembers from the time she was in college, and she didn't know if it was the influence of her friends or if it was uh, her family struggling financially when she was growing up that caused it. She didn't know what caused it, but she said that became so important to her that she would sacrifice hours after hour after hour at the gym to, to, to look a certain size, and she would spend most of what she made in looking good and wearing the right things. And I, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, she's so beautiful to start with. I mean, I have zero hope in here. I was thinking, I, I don't remember the last time I went to the gym, probably 2015. I, I was thinking in my mind, like, I don't know. It's, she was gorgeous already. But she said also that throughout her youth, she had rejected Plenty of young guys that had all the promise in the world, the nicest guys, because they weren't rich. Then she found a wealthy guy. And, and although there were some serious concerns about this guy's character, she decided she was going to marry him anyway, because this guy could provide security for her. Everything just seemed perfect. I had seen her social media, and it was like, whoa, they're out of town again. I mean, that's awesome. You know, everything seemed perfect, but what was really happening is that her life was falling apart. She was miserable. He was miserable. She told me, I have never felt more unwanted in my entire life. She said that he was a serial cheater and that... It made her even more obsessed with beauty 
when she realized that she wanted to look like the women that he was cheating with, that he was cheating with. She had everything she thought she ever wanted, but she was miserable. And then things took a turn for the worse when they got divorced. That's when she came to me, and she was devastated by her divorce. But as we talked, as, as we went over the things that she was feeling, thinking, uh, I, I shared some things, some of my thoughts, and then she couldn't stop crying. And she, she said, I was like, are you okay? And she said, I am noticing that I have lost so much time worshiping at the altar of beauty, at the altar of security and wealth, that I have forgotten who I am. I've forsaken my friendships. I have forsaken my family. I have lost some of my closest friends. I could have had guys that loved me and respected me, but I've been so blind for so long that I didn't even notice that I had abandoned everything that mattered to me. But there's hope. There's hope. You know what helped this friend of mine? It's very simple what helped him. It was worship. Worship was the first step for this friend of mine to rediscover God. And the reason why worship is so important for us, and it was so important for her, is because worship humbles us and it awakens us to the truth that we serve a great, faithful, good God, the only one who could satisfy the longings of our souls. One day we were at the gym and I noticed she came in, she sat towards the back, by herself in a corner. I, I, I was feeling really bad, I was about to approach her, but then we started singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And, um, and as this verse started, and I'm sorry I'm going to have to do this to you guys. I really feel bad about this. <clears throat> Y'all pray for me. This is what we were singing. I was going to just recite it, but I recited it earlier and it sounded really weird. So I'm going to sing it. Here it comes. Are you ready? <clears throat> Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to heal and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Graces of thine and ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All that I needed, thy hands are provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Thank you. I'll be in the band next week, I guess. <laughs> My friend just couldn't stop crying in the back. She was crying her eyes out, and you know why she was crying. And every time that, comes, that song comes on in any set, I just start crying my eyes too because she realized that she had put her hope in things that are not everlasting, in things that pass, in things that offer you a high but that are false, that are not true. She broke up their, her relationships with dear friends because she was so consuming this idolatry. 
But then she noticed that God has always been there, that God was still there, that God was waiting for her to come back home. And that God was the only one that, that could give her what she really, really wanted, what she really, really needed, what she really desired. That no riches, that nothing could heal and satisfy her soul like God could. Worships, worship humbled her. And it humbles us because it unveils our idols right before us. It shows us that none of those idols that we worship, were like, like career, like success, like power, like social status, none of those things at the end of the day can satisfy our souls. That's also the truth that the Judeans had to face when they were worshiping Tammuz and Ishtar and Shamash. They, and then the glory of God leaves the temple. The holiness of God leaves the temple. And they find themselves all alone and emptier than ever before. For the Israelites, it took them witnessing the distraction of the temple and the glory of God leaving the temple for them to truly notice how desolate things can get when God's presence is not there. And we can feel the same way when the Holy Spirit is no longer in us, working in us. We can also feel desolate and in a very lonely place. That is the reason, and this is very important, that's the reason why the person who worships their career, then that person is fired, they feel that their life is over. That's the reason when the person that, that worships power loses the power, they feel that their life just doesn't matter anymore, that nothing matters anymore. And that's the reason when somebody who worships relationships and sex, whenever they have to break up with somebody or, they, or somebody breaks up with them, they feel that they, that they will never be happy again. But that's not true. The good news today is that through our God, through our one true God, through the God of Israel, the same God of the Old Testament, the same God that gave us Jesus, there's always hope. There's always hope for us to come back to our God. This is what happened when the Israelites decided to go back to God and forsake their idols. This is what God tells them. You will return to home and remove all the vile images and detestable idols, and then I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Now, I remember when we first started the story and it's almost our birthday, guys. Can't wait to celebrate. We're almost three years old. I'm so excited. We were at the gym and when a worshipy song would come on the set, some people would quietly grab their stuff and they would just exit as soon as they could. Uh, people would arrive late and leave early because all they wanted, they said, it was to hear Eric's message and then they wanted to be gone. They felt really uncomfortable when some people started raising their hands or whatever it was. Uh, people would be worried sometimes. I, I, would, I would see people getting nervous, like, oh my gosh, what if that person, that's really important person, looks at me singing, and what are they going to think about me? 
People would be worried about appearances, about this or that. But the more we have matured as a community, the more that we have learned how to worship together, what I'm noticing sometimes is that we don't really care who's sitting next to who. We don't really care who's doing what or who's doing the other thing. What I see sometimes is I see people who are sitting in their chairs, the worship of their God is so overwhelming. God speaks to them to their hearts and grab, like grabs them so strongly that they can't do anything but just sit down and cry their eyes out through a song. There is no longer this massive exodus whenever we, we go a little bit over the one hour of worship. <laughs> well, granted, granted. Okay, I have to give you that. Sometimes Eric has preached for 50 minutes. That was his record. But no, we no longer have that happening. Now people that come, they want to worship. They want to know God. They don't care who's around. They don't care what's happening. They're letting God transform their hearts. Speak to them. Destroy those idols. Bring the, God is bringing these people back into the realization that there is one true God and that God is jealous and that God wants all of us. An undivided self. Now, I don't want you to get worried. I'm not like advocating for you guys to start raising your hands or clapping. We're still Methodists. Don't worry. <laughs> but I do want to encourage you to allow the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the messages that we preach, the things that we say to remind you that we serve a mighty God. A great God, a faithful God, a God who works even in the most terrible mess that we've made. A God that will come and that will restore, that will redeem, that will heal, and that will love you with the greatest love there is. I want you to allow worship to, to restore in you a sense of awe, a sense of wonder about God to allow you to remember that God is God, that you are not, that none of those other idols you've worshipped are God, that only God, the one true God that we worship, is who can satisfy our souls. Worship and the true and honest repentance that comes from worship is the one thing that's the antidote for idolatry. The one thing. So if today you feel that an idol has you know, snared you, trapped you, fooled you into abandoning God, I invite you to sing the next song with everything you got. I want you to pray the next prayer with everything you got. I want you to, whenever you come to communion here, that you'll come in remembrance in gratitude and humility for the greatest love that there ever was. I want you to come remember that you serve a great God that can heal, restore, redeem. I want worship to pierce through your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh once again, a heart of flesh that can connect with your creator God once again. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we are so humbled by your presence in this place today. We know that you want us to restore 
our relationship with you. We know that we have been so in denial about how vile we have become when we've worshipped all of these gods that are destroying our lives, are destroying our marriages, are destroying everything that we hold precious and dear. Father, today, through the songs that we sing, through the words that we proclaim, help us to come back to you once again, to say we're yours, and nothing else can separate us from you. Jesus, thank you for sacrificing everything for us on that cross, for nailing our sins to that cross, and for giving us the victory that comes with your name, it is in your name that today we are able to overcome all things. We're able to leave our idols behind. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making us new, for making us your children. It is with humility in our hearts that we pray the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.